I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. It uh, seems like we've been in 1 John 2 for a while, but this is our last week in this chapter. Uh, you have some notes in the worship folder, so I invite you to take those out as well. A couple of years ago, there was a survey that was done, actually by Chapman University up in the L.A. area. And they said that 85% of Americans live with fear of things that are going to happen. And they mentioned three areas specifically, health, politics, and the environment. All of us have fears. Um, there are actual phobias that some Americans have that I read about in this survey that were new to me. I'd never heard of these fears, like a blutophobia, uh, the fear of bathing. So sometimes we think our children have that, maybe if we have little kids. Um, cyclophobia, the fear of bicycles. Uh, electorophobia is the fear of chickens. Uh, Automatonophobia, um, the fear of ventriloquist dummies. <laughs> Phobophobia, which is the fear of fears. And the most concerning to me was palatophobia, the fear of baldness. <laughs> <clears throat> You know, life is filled with setbacks. Uh, baldness might be one of them, I don't know. But uh, maybe you had certain goals for yourself that when you were younger, but you've never been able to reach those goals. Uh, maybe you wanted to be more successful, but there have been obstacles. Maybe you wanted to be loved, but it just seemed like people didn't care. Maybe you had some kind of illness or problems in relationships. I want to share with you the words that Jesus shared 2,000 years ago with his disciples at a time when they were stressed out and really agitated. Uh, and this is God's cure for heart trouble. And these verses are a perfect introduction to the passage of Scripture, these two verses that we're going to focus on this morning. So Jesus wrote to his disciples and he said this, or he said to his disciples uh, at the setting of the Last Supper, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know, Thomas said to him, I, I don't know the way, Lord. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So why were the disciples so afraid after having been with Jesus for so long? Well, Jesus had dropped a number of bombshells on them. He had just revealed that he was going to be betrayed by one of them. He told them that Peter, who was looked at as the leader of the disciples, was going to deny him. And then he gave the worst news of all, that he was going to leave them. So let's look at, in light of that, our two verses at the end of 1 John chapter 2. Verse 28, And now, dear children, continue in him. <clears throat> so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed 
before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. This is God's word. So John has already spoken in this chapter about God's people living a righteous life. Like, look at chapter 2, verse 1 of the same chapter. Uh, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. And then the verse that we looked at last week, verse 27, uh, he says to abide in him. So verse 28, he repeats these ideas, but now he does it in the context of Christ's return, of his return. Hence the title of this sermon, Anticipating His Coming. So these two verses at the end of chapter 2 are kind of like hinge verses between the, what's gone on before and what's happening after. In chapter 2, the word abide has been used 10 times. Um, the word abide is related to the word abode. In other words, we make our home with Christ. We abide with him. We are living in the home he set up for us. And that's what he's talking about here. And these verses introduce us to a new section that the letter focuses on, uh, us abiding in him. But the foundation of that is our sonship via the new birth. Uh, The word born, this is on your outline, has not been used up to this point in the letter, but will be used nine times from this point on. John begins in verse 28 with the words, and now. And so it points to the beginning of this new section. And the new thought that's related to what John has said up to now, and this is number one on your outline, is that we can have confidence before Christ at his coming. John is saying here that our fellowship with God is supported by us continuing to abide in Christ. That's what allows us to enjoy a genuine confidence when we meet the Lord. So that, again, verse 28, when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. And how this happens is the overall theme of what John is talking about, actually from this point, really through the end of chapter 4, almost the end of verse 19 of chapter 4. So John's point is that those who are Christians need to keep abiding in Christ and live Christ-like lives. And the question is why? And the reason he gives is so we can have confidence and not be put to shame at Christ's return. So the doctrine of Christ's return is seen throughout the New Testament. Uh, On your outline, you have this one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament deal with Christ's return. I'll give you some examples. In the gospel, Mark is the first gospel written. Even though it's second in the list, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark was first. And Mark says in 838, um, if anyone is shamed, Jesus is speaking, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. So Matthew and Luke, who use Mark as a reference point when they're writing their Gospels, repeat some of the same verses uh, that Mark uses. 
We already read from John 14, another passage from the Gospel of John. Paul's letters are full of the teaching about Christ's return. You've got some of them on your outline. He talks about meeting the Lord in the air and that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. <clears throat> Paul calls Christ's return the blessed hope. Peter calls it a living hope. And in Revelation, the apostle John writes, look, at he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And John ends with these words in, in Revelation 22. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Those are just a few examples of how important the doctrine of the second coming is in the New Testament. And what John is doing here is not talking about how, just how important this doctrine is among believers, and this is on your outline, but it's also important as an incentive to live the Christian life. There are a lot of different incentives that we can have. If you're a car salesman and, and they're having a rough time selling cars and the, the owner of the car dealership says, I'm gonna give you an extra $500 for every car you sell, that's motivation to sell more cars. There are punishment incentives. Uh, sometimes we use these with our children. We'll say, look, unless you, if you don't do this, you will have a consequence. You're, you're going to be punished. There are natural incentives, things like joy or anger or fear or pain. Those motivate us sometimes knowing that that will be the end result to do certain things. So the incentive we're given for the command to abide in Christ is the second coming of Christ. Right living comes from me making my home with him. But we're encouraged to do that because one day we will give an account of ourselves before God. And because we here at Claremont Emanuel understand that truth, that's part of our motivation to taking the gospel to the ends of the world, to the ends of the earth through our missionaries and sending out missionaries. You know, have you ever had somebody come to your door when you least expect it? Uh, maybe you haven't even had the time to get ready in the morning. Maybe you're wearing clothes that are very comfortable but haven't been washed maybe in a few weeks or something. And, <clears throat> and, uh, and, and you, somebody knocks on the door and you come and uh, you, you don't want to go but you know you have to go to the door. And uh, it's, it's not a fun experience. Maybe it's fun to see the people, but you know, you know you're not ready for them. Now, imagine if Jesus were to suddenly show up at your door. Would you be presentable? Spiritually, would you be ashamed? This is the question Jesus is asking in these verses. We don't know exactly when Jesus is coming back, but we know he is coming back. He'll come whenever he wants, and this is on your outline, since we don't know when, we should live every day prepared for him to return. Lord, help me to live today by your grace, being aware that you could return at any time. Sometimes I think, man, I'm just so ready for the Lord to come back. Other times I'm thinking, no, wait, I need to share Christ with these people. I, I need to talk to these people about their souls. Like we said last week, we're not on the planning committee about when Christ chooses to come, but we are on the reception committee. 
When Jesus does return, every Christian alive at that time will greet him with either confidence or shame. So we want to abide and we want to keep abiding so that when he appears, as the verse says, verse 28, we can be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. And when it says that he appears, the word appears is the Greek word epi, epi, I'm sorry, epiphania. We get the word epiphany from that word. And the word emphasizes the fact of his return, that it's going to be sudden and unexpected. Epiphania. Uh, Jesus uses a form of that word, or John does, I mean, in, in 1 John, to refer to Jesus' first coming as well as his second coming, like this verse here. In fact, this is the only time that he uses that word in this letter. One commentator wrote, Jesus has spoken about the coming of Antichrist, but now he speaks about the coming of Christ. Jesus came the first time as a baby in a manger. He will come the second time as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He came the first time riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. He will come the second time riding on a white horse. Sometimes people ask if there are going to be pets in heaven. I don't know, but I know there are going to be horses. <clears throat> yeah. Again, verse 28, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. There are two words in verse 28 uh, what our, about what our attitude should be when Christ comes. The first word is the Greek word parousia, that means to, be, to have boldness and be confident. In other words, God desires that we be confident when Jesus returns. I know you want to be confident when he returns. That's why you're here. We all want to be confident. And Jesus wants us to be prepared. It's like a pop quiz. We don't know when it's going to happen. I used to hate pop quizzes when I was a student. Uh, the Greek word for Christ's coming is parousia. And John uses it only here in this letter. And in, in, in the first century Greek, it, the parousia was about the arrival of a king, the arrival of somebody with all this kind of pomp and circumstance. It was the respect that was given to a, a dignitary who was coming into town. John uses a play on words here that's in Greek, but it's not in English. We can't make it work in English. So the Greek word for Christ's coming, again, is parousia, and the Greek word for confidence is parousia. Each word has three syllables. The first and the third are exactly the same. Only the middle one is slightly different. And what John is saying is that you should have parousia at Jesus' parousia. Literally have confidence at Christ's return. But he uses this play on words that's kind of interesting. Jesus himself speaks of his second coming a, a, a lot, several times at least, uh, specifically in the, what's known as the Olivet Discourse in Matthews 24 and 25. I encourage you to read that. But in those passages, he says, you do not know what day your Lord is coming, so be ready. It's going to come at an hour you do not expect. And he says the same thing in Luke in a parable of the watching servants. You must be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Again, we need to have the attitude that he could return at any time because he can return at any time. The importance of believers being ready for him when he returns 
is what John is talking about. So why would Christians be ashamed to see Jesus when he returns? They'd be ashamed if they're living in disobedience. And so again, this is God's call for us to live in obedience. And this is what John wants Christians to avoid. You know, my dad fought in World War II. Uh, My dad loved General Eisenhower. And I remember hearing all about it when we flew. Uh, We had a little airplane. My mom and dad were both pilots. We had a Cessna 182. And my dad said, we're going to fly to General Eisenhower's, President Eisenhower's funeral. And uh, I just remember my dad saying that he was a soldier's general. Uh, And uh, so we went out to see him, uh, his funeral. One time when President Eisenhower was in Denver for official events, uh, he had heard that there was a six-year-old boy who had cancer whose one wish in the world was to meet President Eisenhower. And so without telling the family, President Eisenhower and his entourage show up at this little boy's home, and they go and knock on his door. His dad, who was wearing clothes that probably hadn't been washed in a few weeks and had a scrubbly beard, and, and uh, he answered the door. Could you imagine the surprise of opening your door, not expecting to see the president and seeing the president. <clears throat> and they had this amazing time where he'd met the son and, and uh, the dad later was interviewed about it and he said, what a way to meet the president <laughs> when you're not expecting it. Every one, every Christian who's alive and those who are dead will be in front of us uh, will meet the Lord with either confidence or shame. And I know that you all want to have confidence when we meet the Lord. So how do we have it? There are a lot of things that we can do. Being obedient to God. But a couple things at the top of the list, I think, are, and these are on your outline. Number one, encourage the people around you. Everyone needs recognition. Everyone needs encouragement. Everyone needs encouragement. Few people make known their need quite as clearly as the little kid who told his dad, Dad, let's play darts. I'll throw, and you say, great job. But that's what we all need. We all need encouragement. And so the writer to the Hebrews says this, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do. But encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So when are we supposed to encourage each other? Right now. You know, what happened, and, and this is my prayer, that everyone here right now would, would say something encouraging to another person here before you leave today. That's what, part of why we gather, to encourage each other. The second thing that we can do to prepare and not be ashamed at Christ's coming is on your outline, keep doing what Jesus left us here to do. And he left us here to be a witness. Before Jesus went into heaven, he gave his church, us, our marching orders. 
And those of you who are at the missions course heard this last week in all of its glory as we went through the book of Acts. But in Acts 1, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Whether you want to or not, whether you're having a bad day or a good day, you will be his witnesses to your family, to the people in your neighborhood, to the people at your school, your friends. We, we are witnesses. We need to be good witnesses to them. In the next verse in Acts, the disciples are standing around basically looking at Jesus going, being uh, ascending into the heavens with their mouths open, I can imagine. And the angels come and say, basically, get busy. Don't just stand there looking at Jesus. Get busy. And that's his word for all of us. We need to be aware that Christ is coming back. We have a task to do. And the task is to reach the world with Christ. And where do we start? We start in Jerusalem. And then Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that brings us to the second point on the outline, and that is right living is evidence of the new birth. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is righteous has been born of him. John is saying that by doing righteousness, we show that we've inherited the family trait of being righteous, like Jesus was righteous. In other words, God is righteous, and everyone who is born of God should live a righteous life. In verse 28, that's the incentive, that, that to live as Jesus lived. This is the foundation. Verse 28 gives us the incentive, and verse 29 gives us the foundation. And we could say verse 29 like this. I think the word if is really better translated since. So it would be since we know that Christ is sinless, and always does what is right, we also know that all who do what is right are God's children. Like father, like son. God is righteous, Jesus is righteous, so we should live a righteous life. James 2 says, you see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. So on your outline, you have this genuine faith always leads the believer to obey God. Faith and works can't be separated. It's like asking which plane of an, which, which wing of an airplane is most important, the left wing or the right wing. Well, I think they're both pretty important if you're going to get anywhere in an airplane. We know from Ephesians 2 that good deeds can't produce salvation. According to James, though, they're necessary proof that true faith is actually present. Both James and Paul agree that if someone lacks obedience to God, it proves they lack saving faith. So how's your obedience? Are you up to date on your obedience with God? Are you doing things that you know God disproves of? Again, we want to be ready when he comes. Once you believe, your belief will be evidence of your, evident by your actions. There was a man named Patrick Green in San Antonio, Texas, who was an outspoken atheist. <clears throat> he was the, one of the guys who loved to sue the city anytime they did anything that smelled of being too Christian. So he would sue when the city put up a manger scene. And in an interview as to why, he said, you know, people call themselves Christian. He said, I've never had a Christian do anything Christian for me. 
You know, I think it's true that uh, people who are not believers have a higher expectation for Christians than Christians than we even do for ourselves. Well, this man, Patrick Green, lost his job because he couldn't see, he was a driver. And uh, one of his neighbors heard about this and contacted her pastor and said, what if we did something Christian for him to show him? And so they raised money. They gave him $400. And then they gave him subsequent checks as well just to help feed his family and to encourage him. And he was interviewed and asked about this. And he said, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. He said, I've, I've never had Christians act like this, but uh, these Christians are doing something that I've never experienced before. He even bought a star to hang over the manger scene that he had sued them to take out. It was electric. He said, you need to figure out how to plug it in. I'm not going to do that. But the new birth is something that only God can do. God is the source. He is the one who causes a new birth to take place. You had nothing to do with your physical birth, and you have nothing to do with your spiritual birth except to receive it as a gift. That's what it is. In John 6, uh, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And notice the promise after that, and I will raise them up on the last day. But no one comes to, the, to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. You think maybe you're seeking God on your own. You're seeking God because God is drawing you to himself. In other words, it's God who gives us the desire to come to Jesus, and it's God who gives us the ability to place our trust in Christ. The second coming of Jesus is our incentive to practice living in a way that pleases God. So think of how practical this doctrine is for us. If I know that Jesus is coming back, maybe today, there are no guarantees. We're not guaranteed to, to even live to be here next week. Or maybe Jesus will come back. Wouldn't that be awesome? But if you knew Jesus was coming back tonight, how would you act? What would you do this afternoon? Those of you who are in the missions course, I know you'd be here. But if you knew that Jesus was coming back, how would you treat your neighbors? Would you tell them about the good news about Jesus or your, your employees or employer or, or the people you go to school with? How would you act toward them? How would you act in a hundred different places that you're taken throughout the week? If I love Jesus and I keep pursuing a godly life, it doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect, but it means I live in his forgiveness. If I'm looking forward to his return, I can have confidence when I see him face to face. In one of Paul's last books, his last book was 2 Timothy. <clears throat> and in 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes, and now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Are you ready for Jesus to come back? He is coming back. We don't know when it is, but we've got to be ready by, how, do we, how are we ready? We abide in him. We live in Christ. 
I read recently that the majority of Americans believe that if a person is generally good and does enough good things, that they will earn a place in heaven. That is not what the Bible teaches. The first problem is whose definition of sin are you using? Even if you come up with your own definition of sin, we all fall short of that. But God is the one who will judge us. And from God's perspective, even one sin is enough to keep us out of heaven. James says this, if you offend at one point, for the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. Sin means to cross a line that God has has established. We've all seen the signs, no solicitors. Don't walk on the grass. Uh, Be quiet if you're in a library. Don't trespass. Those are all signs that say don't cross this line. God has drawn a line for us to cross that's perfection. And we all sin. We all fall short of that line. God has set high standards for all of us and, and perfection. And none of us can measure up to that. And you might say, Kenny, if that's true, how do I ever get to God? And the answer is you won't apart from Jesus Christ. He's the only way to have a relationship with God. So, you know, in in Revelation 3.20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's writing to Christians. And so where in your life is Jesus standing at a door and knocking? Where does he want full control in your life where you haven't given him lordship of some area of your life? And you might say, well, you know, I don't like that, Kenny. That seems so narrow, that approach. So bigoted. How can you say that? It's not me saying that. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus says. You know, think of taking a plane to Hawaii. Wouldn't we all like to be on a plane to Hawaii? And you're taxiing down the runway. You've got your seatbelt on, especially now because the door, the side things might blow out. Um, but you're taking off and you're climbing and the pilot comes on and he says, welcome to flight 1198 to Honolulu. Um, our cruising altitude will be 32,000 feet uh, and we'll be showing a movie. You think, great, I'm going to sit back and relax. And then you hear the pilot say this. What, what would happen if he said something like this? By the way, folks, I'm not so sure about the whole fuel thing. I see that the gauge indicates that I don't have enough fuel to reach our destination, but don't worry about it. I feel really good about this. I have all these navigation instruments, but I'm not even going to look at them anyway. Uh, It's way too narrow, too bigoted to look at those instruments. I I just believe all roads ultimately lead to Hawaii, so we'll get there one way or the other, and I'm very sincere about this. You would think the guy's a lunatic, And he would be if he said something like that. Or can you imagine signing up for a surgery and the surgeon says, I've never done this before, but I'm really looking forward to to trying this out on you for the first time. I don't think so. But in the most important issue of all, where we will spend eternity, we'll take this loosey-goosey view. And I think as long as a person is sincere and believes something with all their heart, it's good enough. No, that is not what the Bible says. It isn't being good enough. We all fall short of God's glory. 
And so verses 28 and 29 are saying that right living is evidence of the new birth. That how do we get right with God? I can, I can, how do I know that I'll go to heaven when I die? How can I fill this hole in my heart that, that I've tried to fill with things or people or relationships or accomplishments or whatever? Well, first of all, these are on your outline. I have to admit, admit I'm a sinner. I can't blame my parents for my actions. I need to admit and say I am a sinner. I need to understand that Jesus Christ, secondly, died on the cross for me. This verse that we probably all know by memory, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Put your name where it says world. For God so loved Kenny that he gave his only begotten son. That if I would believe, I have eternal life. That's the promise. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, and a man laid down his life for his friends. Third, I need to repent of my sin. What does that mean? To repent means that I change directions. I'm going one way. I do a U-turn toward God and away from my sinful lifestyle. And if I'm going away from God, I need to, I need to go towards him. The fourth step is to receive Christ in my life. It's a gift. It's a free gift. All I have to do is say, thank you, Lord. I receive this. I invite you to come into my life. Paul said to the Philippians, for to him is to live as Christ. So does Christ live in you? And if he lives in you, is he Lord? What area do you need to give him the lordship of? The Bible says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right and the power to become the children of God. And the fifth step, and this is on your outline, this is a blank, I need to commit myself to Christ publicly. In other words, be baptized. Jesus gave us this in the Great Commission, to be baptized. Everyone that called upon Jesus openly and publicly, if, if Jesus, when they followed him, Jesus didn't say, well, you need to come forward and I'm going to have some people here to lead you to Christ. No, you know what Jesus said? Be baptized. That's the public declaration of you being a Christian. And so make that declaration. We're going to have a baptism next week here. And if you haven't been baptized, be baptized. Come and talk to me. We'll baptize you. Uh, you need to make this public declaration. It's Super Bowl Sunday next week. We're going to make it a really super Sunday by having a baptism. If you need to be baptized, come and talk to me. We'll get you baptized. It's a publicly declaring. Jesus said, if you acknowledge me before people, I will acknowledge you before my Father and the angels in heaven. And if you deny me before people, I'll deny you before my Father and the angels. And then finally, do it now. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says, today is the day of salvation. Right now. Don't put it off. If you need to respond to Christ, do it today. If you need to make him Lord of your life, do business with God today. Let's pray.